All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out to this uh, afternoon's uh, panel event on uh, how September 11th, 2001 uh, affected us. Uh, just to begin, I'm going to ask everyone to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Jeremy Kingery. I am an academic advisor here at the college, and I also teach American national government. <coughs> Thanks to my students who are here, because you have to be. <laughs> I'm Pat O'Connor. I'm the uh, police chief here. Uh, I've been here for about two years, and I've also been an adjunct for about the last 14 years, and te I teach criminal justice here. My name is Kevin Shaughnessy, the retired Chief of Police of Lamont, Illinois, and retired from the Illinois State Police. My name is Nereida Perez, and I work um, as a departmental assistant for the Multicultural Student Affairs Center. Hi, everyone. My name is Sumit Singh. I am an academic advisor here at the college. All right, thank you. <laughs> Extra credit points. Yeah, they're trying hard. Uh, would anyone like to, to go first of my colleagues up here? Or I can start. I'll start if you want, and we can move down the panel, or my, my uh, cohort to the right can go ahead and we'll go down to the table. Go ahead, Chief. I've never known you to be shy. I, I'm very shy. <laughs> As I said uh, before, I'm Pat O'Connor. I'm the police chief here. Uh, and I think one of the things that you look at when you see September 11th, and not as much for our students who are young, but for our faculty and staff members here, I think most of us will be in a position where we've got that date and time ingrained in our brain. It's uh, one of those life uh, altering and changing events that you remember for probably the rest of your life. Uh, on September 11th, uh, I was the police chief in the village of Worth. I'd been there just, uh, just over a year. Uh, and I remember walking into my building in the morning and I was having a cup of coffee and one of my investigators walked in and said, Chief, you." some plane just hit the World Trade Center. And naturally you assume it was an accident, the first one. So I walked investigations division, I took a look at the film and they were shooting a live broadcast. And uh, I thought that was a, a shame for all those people who were involved in this. Uh, I recognized there was a, a large fire. Uh, first responders responding to the scene. But it was all unfolding and as we all do, we went, I went back to my life. I had some people coming in to see me. I walked back into my office, uh, and within a short time period, I had uh, uh, somebody else uh, walk in and say, a second plane hit a, a different one. You know, obviously, all, all of a sudden, your, your focus changes, and you recognize uh, that this isn't an accident. Uh, it's a terrorist attack. Uh, and I think wh when we change our mindset is when we recognize in this country, because we haven't had to deal with it, is we recognize that this is, in my lifetime, the first time the U.S. continental U.S. was attacked. We've had foreign wars, uh, but we have not fought battles on our, on our uh, uh, turf. So I started paying more attention to it. I had a couple people who were going to be coming to see me about one issue or another, call and cancel, and I knew exactly where they were going. Uh, strangely enough, within a short time period, uh, by midday I had a phone call uh, from the person who was the campus chief here at the time asking me uh, if, uh, I was the current president of South Suburban Chiefs, asking me if we had any resources uh, if he had problems on campus. I assured him that the local chiefs would back him up. I made some phone calls to ensure it. And then shortly thereafter, I had a phone call from a resident. Uh, and I still remember this. 
she was Muslim. Uh, she had had a verbal exchange in the middle of the street with somebody, and she said, Chief, we didn't do anything. Is there anything we should do? Uh, I made my guys aware of the situation, and that was immediately followed up with a notification that we had demonstrators out in the street at Southwest Highway and Harlem Avenue. That's something that most of us haven't had to deal with, and you're walking this fine line. Uh, we had demonstrators walk out uh, and step in front of cars for um, people of Muslim, obvious Muslim descent going home uh, with American flags and yell at them. Now think of it from my perspective. Uh, this is my community. People rely on me to make sure that they're safe, and I had Americans challenging Americans uh, over something that they had no control of. I, I'm going to move this forward is the fact that we had about 150 demonstrators at Southwest Highway in Harlem by midday. Uh, my police officers went out there. I met with the demonstrators and indicated my support for them. I indi indicated that I felt the same way they, they did, the outrage and loss of life. Uh, but they were on private property, they couldn't demonstrate here, and they were obstructing the rights of people driving down Harlem Avenue. Uh, by the early afternoon, I got a phone call from the police chief over in Oak Lawn, who said they had now assembled outside the Oak Lawn uh, High School parking lot and were blocking 95th Street. And then shortly thereafter, in the afternoon, uh, I got a phone call from Bridgeview police chief who said that they were now marching on the mosque community. I think one of the things that we recognize in this country is freedom of speech and how important it is. But we also have to recognize, and one of the things I didn't realize when I was having my coffee at 7 o'clock in the morning standing in my office was how you have to usher other people's freedom of speech and, their, and usher their religious beliefs in two different directions. Uh, and that same document, the Constitution, ensures both of those. So we want for a period of about six days with uh, demonstrations uh, in Bridgeview up and down the hallway, and what w I mean up the, 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 the entryway along Harlem Avenue. Uh, a lot of the community members were nervous, and what I can tell you at the end of this, uh, we were able to allow for protections of the people in the community, and we were also able to allow for demonstrations. But it was the first time in my, in my life where I saw two groups so diametrically opposed for no rational belief other than the fact of they were wanting to put their anger on somebody else. So I think that that week-long uh, diatribe that we've just gone through was kind of one of those things that will always be in my mind trying to express to some people, you don't have a right to do this and inflict your wills on somebody else and still feeling the loss that everybody else did uh, with the, the amount of lives lost. I will end it there. Thank you, Chief. All right, so uh, if you'll forgive me, I'm gonna kind of read here, but I wanted to be able to uh, organize my thoughts a little bit. So uh, for the students, just to give you a little background, um, I was a lot like you when September 11th happened. I was a 23-year-old college student living in central Illinois, working, going to school, worrying about the things that college students worry about. <coughs> uh, as far as how that day affected me, um, you know, first I have to say I, I'm, I'm lucky. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't have friends or family in New York. Uh, I didn't know anyone who died that day. Um, 
later on, though, you know, it kind of got put into perspective. Uh, my mom worked as a paramedic for a while. Uh, her husband's a firefighter. You know, and, and I think about that, what they risk every day uh, going to work. You never do. Um, I'm just going to jump in in the meantime, um, and then we'll let Jeremy gather his thoughts. <clears throat> My name is Sameet Singh, and I am an academic advisor here at the college. And um, my parents are from India, and I'm a Sikh by religion. Um, I'm not, not a Muslim extremist or uh, a member of the Taliban. That's kind of what the perspective was when 9-11 happened for the people that did not understand. Um, there were a lot of Sikhs that were assaulted, um, they were killed. Um, I, there were seven casualties, seven people were actually killed. Um, there were over 200 different incidents of people just being harassed, just immigrants or Americans uh, that are just trying to make a better life for themselves by just working at, um, not to stereotype, but maybe working at a gas station or driving a cab or just doing just regular jobs that they're doing. Um, and uh, there was a gentleman, an older gentleman at a Texas gas station that this guy just pulled up and for no random reason pulled out a gun and shot him right, right in the head and killed him on the spot. Uh, all of this transpired because people, because of the actions of some very few individuals, not, not a group, not a religion, whatever you wanna call it, however you wanna classify it, but the actions of few individuals affected so many of us on so many different levels. Um, especially uh, for me, uh, I've always, well not always, but I've had uh, facial hair and, and the turban. It's part of my religion. Uh, it's part of being a Sikh. So when people look at me, they looked at me a certain way. And when 9-11 happened, uh, I grew up on, on the crazy, chaotic streets of Schaumburg. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's rough out there growing out, you know? You, you have to always watch your back. Uh, but uh, no, honestly, on, on a serious note, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's people that are uh, well-educated, most of them, uh, low crime and things like that. And I couldn't believe uh, when people started yelling, uh, you know, certain uh, profanities, go back where you came from. And I'm just looking at that and I'm like, do you want me to go back to Schaumburg or <laughs> Palatine? Like, where, do you, where should I go? Uh, but it's, you could feel it. It, it was extremely tense. And for the first time in, in my own country, I, I felt unsafe. I, I felt like, wow, um, we remember at home, um, at that time I drove a Nissan Altima, and I literally went out and got six flags, <laughs> and, and I put them all over my car, and literally was like, God bless America. They were, my, my dad started wearing a lapel, um, and it was just one of those things where uh, our neighborhood was perfectly fine, we, you know, people knew us, we've been in that same house for 20, 25 years, but just out and about, I had just started NIU, and, and the campus overall was pretty safe, but uh, when, you know, you go on the outskirts of like Sugar Grove or Rochelle or whatever, you kind of had to watch your back, you really did, and uh, I remember one night, uh, after a week, we decided to go out, and uh, uh, I don't know, we were out, um, and, uh, I think I got lost or something. It's a long story without getting into the finer details of things. There was a gentleman and he looked quite intimidating. I mean, this guy had, he was a big dude, had a Harley Davidson t-shirt on. He was just, he looked like a really intimidating guy and he came really, really close to me and I was just wandering the streets kinda. And I'm not gonna tell you why I was wandering the streets. 
But, uh, and he looked at me and he's like, son, are you lost? How can I help you? And I was just like kind of blown away like how nice he was to me. And, uh, and we just started talking about what had happened. And he's like, how are people treating you? And I'm like, overall, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're good. So that was kind of like a positive incident that, that happened. Uh, but overall, um, I think the best thing we can do uh, is to educate people uh, on what happened. Uh, a lot of young faces in the crowd. So for you guys, uh, uh, all of us remember where we were, like the chief said. A lot of you probably don't, or even if you do, um, it's it's something to look back. And the radar will share that with us to just look at the history, because it was such a profound event in, in in our American history. And we should never really forget. We should understand. And this, you know, events like this give us an opportunity to open dialogue, um, so we can learn from each other, learn about the tragedy. And, and we you know, might not have the same perspectives or whatnot, but it's very important to un understand that. Thank you, Samit. Absolutely. All right, let's see if I can get through this. Um, so as I said, I, you know, I was fortunate. I didn't know anyone who died. Um, but like a lot of people in my generation, what I did watch was friends of mine go off to fight a war. Uh, people I went to high school with, people I went to college with, and uh, some of them didn't come home. Good friend John Metzger, who was killed in Afghanistan. Uh, I've got a buddy Mike, who uh, almost died in Iraq. Um, jumped on a grenade to save his friends. Uh, luckily, came home. Um, but really, what I think about when I think about September 11th is um, kind of what could have been. Um, for the students here who are too young, um, there's a clear pre-September 11th, post-September 11th world. There's a pre and post-September 11th America. <coughs> and you know, what I think about is how different our society is today. I think about how different our country uh, and the world, sorry, <laughs> the world is today. Um, you know, I think about the people who died that day. I think about the soldiers, the Marines, the airmen and women, the sailors uh, who died. Uh, I think about the civilians who died from the resulting uh, conflicts that have really still lasted up until today. I think about what it's like for my, my Arab and Muslim friends, kind of what Chief and, and Samit have already spoke to, uh, who were harassed. These people were intimidated, uh, threatened, sometimes outright assaulted, uh, simply because the people who did this looked like them. Um, one of my good friends, just to give an example, her mother worked for the same company for 25 years. Shortly after September 11th, she had to quit that job uh, because she was being harassed, she was being threatened by coworkers, people she had worked alongside with every day of her life for you know, 20, almost 25 years at this point. I also think about it uh, in, in terms of you know, personal level. Um, so shortly after September 11th, like a lot of people, I decided that um, I wanted to serve my country and I went to join the United States Marine Corps. Um, long story short, uh, one of the many jobs I did while I was in college was deliver pizzas and a couple years before September 11th, I had gotten robbed. I had to have reconstructive surgery, got a plastic plate for an eye socket. Uh, if you follow basketball, similar to what happened to Derrick Rose, you know, orbital reconstruction. Um, that's what they call uh, grounds for medically ineligible for military service. Um, simply because I had a plastic plate and a pin in my eye, uh, Marine Corps would not uh, have me, if you will. Um, that was hard for me. You know, I had uh, three grandfathers, two served in World War II, one served in Korea kind of felt like it was you know, my duty to serve as they had. Um, 
yeah, that was rough, you know, being told kind of you're not good enough. You know, you're not good enough for this, uh, this service. So uh, many people who know me know I'm into music, and uh, Dave Matthews' band has a song called Dancy Nancy's. And they go through a series in that song. He says, could I have been a parking lot attendant? Could I have been a millionaire in Bel Air? And um, I kind of think about that. You know, what would have happened had I been medically eligible for military service? Um, you know, would I have been one of the ones who didn't come home like John? Would I have been one of the ones who came home injured like Mike? Would I have been one of the ones who came back with one of those invisible illnesses that we don't like to talk about, things like PTSD and you know, other uh, trauma-related uh, mental health injuries, if you will, mental health conditions? Um, would I have been one of the 22 veterans who kill themselves every day? You know, would I have been a war hero? Who, who knows? You know? um, but I, I, I do often wonder you know, what would have been, you know, what would have happened. Some people, let's be honest, might say I was lucky, you know, that I avoided potentially a litany of, of injuries, death, or even just trying to live with some of the things that men and women have to do when they're a part of a war. Um, whether I'm lucky or not, I, I don't know. I don't know if I was lucky, if I was fortunate, or if I was just robbed of a chance to serve my country as many men and women have done before me. Uh, the bottom line is, I don't think you can underestimate the effect that September 11, 2001 had on the United States. I don't think you can underestimate or understate the effect uh, that it's had on the world. Uh, for a lot of our young students, you know, you guys were what, two years old, three years old? You know, like I said, I was, I was 23, I remember that day. I remember my roommate at the time coming home uh, from class, I was getting ready to go to class, and kind of like Chief said, you know, something happened in New York, man, a plane hit a building, you know? turn on the TV to watch the second plane uh, hit. And at that point, as Chief said, it went from, wow, this is a crazy accident to this is a deliberate act uh, you know, by, by someone. Didn't know who yet, didn't know what was going on, confused, scared, angry, you know, just a litany of emotions. Um, I'm sure probably you know, a long time from now, people will, I don't want to say forget what happened that day, but I don't think they'll understand the impact or the significance. Probably just like I don't necessarily understand the significance of Pearl Harbor the way my grandfathers did. Um, but I'll tell you, for me, that that day will never come. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, I think what I'm going to talk about kind of relates a little bit to what Jeremy was saying. Um, I was pretty young when September 11 happened. I was in grammar school. Um, and I remember my mom was driving us to school and um, she had the radio on and usually it was music playing, but um, it was just, you know, they were talking about how the plane had hit, well, they had said a plane had hit a building and I kept thinking a plane hit a building, you know, well, why? How could a plane have hit a building? Where did this happen? And it wasn't until we got to school that um, what our teachers did was just play the news for us all day. And it was just a very quiet day at school. Um, so like Jeremy says, I think a lot of um, kids nowadays or students or, or, or you know young adults um, may not remember um, 
that day as well um, as people who, you know, might have been here or, um, you know, were in New York and everything. But, um, but um, for me, as an adult now, um, I mean, throughout the years, every year, September 11 was always a day that we would remember, whether it was at school or whether it was at home. Um, but as an adult and as a, a mom, because I have a, I have a daughter and she turns two in January, um, I think 15 years ago, many people never got the chance to come home. And, um, and I like to read up on different stories and um, hear about different victims' um, lives. And I was reading on John O'Neill and Barbara Olson and Betty Young and um, uh, right now I, I constantly watch a show by Bill Maher um, and I read that um, that Barbara Olson was one of the um, was supposed to be one of the the speakers on his show for politically incorrect that was a show back then and how he left a chair open for her for a whole week um, and then I read how Christine was the youngest um, victim from 9-11 because she was, no, it's okay. I mean, emotions um, are high. Because <laughs> um, Christine was two and a half years old. Take a breath. You know, one of these things that she regains herself. I want you to all think about is, you know, although the younger students in the room didn't go through this. Uh, think about your mom and dad walking out the door and saying goodbye and I love you and then we don't see you again. Uh, I think it's a, a, a life-changing event because there's no rhyme or reason to it. And as we look at this, I remember listening to a woman on September 11th this Sunday who said, I gave my husband a goodbye, he went to work, uh, and, and I got a text message for him when I was in the shower, I love you, I don't know if I'm ever going to come home, but I love you. It's a terrible way to look at it. It's a terrible way for us to go through things in life. But when we look at how it affects our lives, uh, there's no answers, there's no right, there's no wrong. It's part of the human condition to grieve. But it's also something that's always back there in the back of your mind because you don't get a chance to say goodbye. Thank you, sorry. <laughs> um, when I think of Christina, how she was two and a half years old, um, I recently traveled to San Antonio um, with my boyfriend and my daughter, and I hadn't been on a plane. I used to, my family and I used to go to Mexico every year on a plane, and I hadn't been on a plane um, since September 11th, and it wasn't because my family was afraid to fly or anything. It was just because we decided to ride to Mexico and drive down there, but um, I hadn't been on a plane since um, September 11th, and when I was on the plane, I was looking at my daughter and I was remembering, it might sound a little odd, but I was remembering September 11th. I was remembering the victims of September 11th on the way back um, from San Antonio because, you know, I was sitting on this plane and looking at the wing and looking out the window and, uh, and just think about families that were on the plane and, and um, how it probably was such a, um, frightening experience for them. But um, 
what I wanted to say and why I agreed to sit on the panel was because um, we hear about all those um, victims and we hear about heroes and sometimes we get to hear stories and sometimes we get to hear recordings of, um, of people who were able to reach someone um, during those last minutes. But I decided to sit on the panel to remind you to remember those people who didn't get the chance to reach someone that day um, and to remember to think of those people. Well, seeing as how Pat started off from a law enforcement perspective, I feel like as the uh, last guy to speak here, I'll give you the other side of the law enforcement perspective. Um, Pat and I see death every day, maybe not here at college, but in our profession. So while there's a lot of emotion up here, police officers deal with that every day. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about me, well, there were three times in my life that I know exactly where I was when something happened. The first one was when President Kennedy was assassinated. I was 10 years old, went to a Catholic school. We were brought into the church and said, we're going to pray for the president. He's been assassinated. I didn't know what that word meant. We're all asking each other, weren't we little kids? Obviously, come to find out, he was killed. Uh, years later, I was in the State Police Academy taking an in-service class in the shuttle had blown up midair. They brought a TV in to show us literally seconds after that happened. I clearly remember where I was at. And on September 11, 2001, it was my wedding anniversary. I was married 25 years that day. I took the day off. A few years prior to that, a couple years really, I'd been promoted to captain. I was the district commander of District 5 Joliet, which takes in the the areas of Will County, Grundy County, and Kendall County. So in the morning, I was figuring I was going to spend the day with my wife. Um, I was watching TV, got up early, and I saw on the TV there was a, one of the World Trade Towers. There was smoke coming out of it. And my wife is, her family is from New York. Her dad and I had a little competition. He was a New York City kid, and I was a Chicago guy. So we had a little rivalry there, but I, uh, she had family in New York. She was from a suburb of New York City. So when I saw that on TV, obviously it, it took my attention and I sat down immediately and, and watched. Shortly thereafter, a second plane had hit the second tower and I immediately got up, got in the shower and went to work. No one called me, no one said anything, but I knew Unlike when I was 10 years old, when they said the president's been assassinated, when that second t plane hit, I knew exactly what was going on. So now the dilemma was, as a police officer, what do I do? Because terrorism wasn't in our vocabulary back then. Our job, we've been trained since the day we go in the police academy, is get the bad guy. So I put my uniform on and I drove to Joliet obviously knowing when they're bombing, when they're literally using a plane as a bomb to take down a building, what can I do about that? I didn't realize really the depth of the problem. I found out later the Pentagon had got bombed, that a plane came down in Pennsylvania because of some heroic Americans that decided to take some action and brought that plane down before it could kill others. And uh, so in District 5, 
if you're not familiar with it, there's a nuclear power plant down in Braden, Braidwood. And out by Morris, Dresden, is a spent fuel nuclear plant. And uh, when terrorism was announced that this is what's going on, certainly we prioritized uh, and looked at high-value targets for terrorists. I was literally right across the road from the prison in Joliet. I sort of prayed that, Jesus, I hope the power don't go out and those gates open and people are flooding the streets right next to me that are wanted murderers and whatnot, so that's a whole different problem. But we, we obviously got together and uh, our commands in Springfield and logically started thinking, what is our role? And obviously critical infrastructure of the state is our responsibility. So we assign troopers to the power plants. And one of the questions, if you think about, hey, you know, we're all pretty much regular guys. We happen to wear a uniform. None of us were brain surgeons. But we thought about if somebody comes to the nuclear power plant and tries to breach the plant, whether they drive in at 90 miles an hour or they jump over the gate, what do we do as law enforcement officers? Do we use deadly force? That's a question that obviously lawyers can argue into infinity. Um, but that's just something that we understood we'd do whatever it takes. Never really talked about having a legal decision from the Supreme Court. This is then, this is right now. We gotta do, we gotta protect that facility. We also protected bridges and water filtration plants because we really were searching for a way to do something good in such a terrible time. And again, you know, if you think about the role of police officers in this country, we have posters of bad guys. We know, hey, this guy's wanted on a warrant for robbery. This guy's wanted for burglary. Go get him. There were no posters. We were out to get terrorists, which we really didn't know. Who? Of course, shortly thereafter, we heard the word Osama bin Laden. And the impulse for me was to go to New York immediately. I wanted to leave town and get on the next plane and help all those police officers that lost their fellow officers and the firemen that lost their, their fellow fire officers, the firefighters, the paramedics. Um, but because we had a job to do, we, were, we couldn't go. The state police did not allow any of us to leave town. We had to stay right there where we were at to do our job. But I think, you know, as a cop, that's our first instinct. When an officer gets shot, I don't care where it is in the United States, an officer gets murdered, that affects every single one of us. Even we don't know them, and in New York, certainly, I did not know any of the officers, unfortunately for my wife and family, we didn't lose anybody that was uh, in, in the trade towers or in that area when they came down, or when those planes hit the towers. So we were fortunate in that respect. But, you know, wanting to go there to help out. We want to stand shoulder to shoulder and do whatever it takes. So knowing that we couldn't do that, it's like, all right, do what we got to do here. And so we became sort of uh, accustomed and, and we, we, we started a routine. Every day we would check the bridges, the overpasses, the water plants. We had round-the-clock security at the power plant. We would also check out people whose names came to us that were maybe suspected of some uh, bizarre behavior. There were a lot of innocent people, and I, I hear the, you know, the panel speak now. I never really thought of it from that perspective as a police officer, but 
because our only intention was, hey, we can't let this happen again, and if somebody's going to try to hurt somebody else, we got to intervene. But there were all sorts of uh, well-minded people who called the police and said, hey, this person's acting suspiciously. So part of our job was to check that out and to make sure that there no harm would come to anybody by their actions, that you know there was nothing going on there. So for one year, we settled into a routine. Uh, September 11th, 2002, I, I went to New York City. And um, a friend of mine, uh, Mike O'Connell, was the chief of uh, Tinley Park, who subsequently has passed away, but he knew the head of the Port Authority Police, and he, he got me a, a ringside seat, if you will, to the commemoration the year after. And I went there in uniform, and I, 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 I didn't get a hotel room because I don't think there was any to be had. I just wound up sleeping in the station the night before and the night after, and they gave me a ride back to the airport after it was all over with. But I wanted to be there because that calling to help, to just tell people, hey, I'm sorry for your loss because Pat knows this, and my counterpart, Chief Maton in the back there, who was also with the state police, when you talk about or read a brotherhood, that's real. That's not a word. That's for real. So when I went there, the first thing that I noticed in, in going to Ground Zero, which was uh, nowhere, you know, it, the, the debris had been picked up, but the dust, the white dust still permeated the area uh, from the Twin Towers. That, that I could see. The wind had blown up, and it was a very eerie feeling. But the pain and the suffering that the people felt, because it was all family that came there, was just, I couldn't really deal with that. I wanted to take pictures to show my comrades back home. I couldn't. I had to put my camera away. It was a little embarrassing. They had limited the crowd to family members and, of course, law enforcement, firefighters. But um, I, I remember feeling so bad and out of place because I didn't lose a loved one. And these people's pain was just overwhelming. But wanting to make a difference, what I did do is I arranged uh, back in the district where I worked that the exact moment that the Twin Towers, the first tower came down, or, the, or actually not that it came down when it was struck by the plane, that I would simulcast, they call it, go over every police radio in, in the state police in my district and talk to the troopers told them to pull over at this time and we're going to have a moment of silence. So when the time came and I started thinking, what can I say to the troopers that would have any kind of meaning? They're, they're uh, 900 miles away. But as I looked up and on the wall next to the, what was ground zero, there was a message that was up there and I, I wanted to print it out and I, I didn't have time today. But I just wound up reading what was on the side of this building. You've probably seen that if you've watched clips of the, the trade towers there and Ground Zero. And I read that to him. And um, that was my only comment. And I, I just reminded him to be safe. But out of, out of that whole event, certainly we live with it today. Terrorism is, is uh, we're, we're, we're actually, we became soldiers in the war on terrorism. Okay? We were street cops before. Now we're soldiers. And uh, so this is tough time for the police. I'm not going to editorialize at all. But everybody who wears a badge is a human being. We have emotion. 
We have feelings, we have strengths, we have weaknesses. And I just ask you from the bottom of my heart today, and Pat and, and Chief Maton over there, when we make decisions about the police, that we do so on an individual basis, that we don't generalize and we don't throw everybody under the bus, that we remember that when the, the crap hits the fan, we're the first ones running to your aid. And I'd ask you to remember that. Thank you. Um, at this point, we wanted to go ahead and just see if we have any questions from anyone in the audience. And if you have questions, raise your hand. I'll come to you with the microphone so that everyone can hear. And for my students, this isn't like class. You guys are actually allowed to talk here. <laughs> not that they're not allowed to talk. They just don't talk. All right. Have you seen a change? Has there been a big change in law enforcement protocols after 9-11? Can you give examples of any, um, if you think about it? You know, and I think it's, uh, and Kevin can jump in. Uh, I, you know, he made a statement that I think everybody smiled and shook their head with, uh, that there was a pre-9-11 uh, uh, world and there was a post-9-11 world. Um, and. One of the things I think is most telling is the fact of uh, after 9-11, uh, local law enforcement found that they were being asked by the federal government to be the information gatherers, uh, the first point of contact. Uh, and one of the things we recognize is in a terrorist incident, we now, local law enforcement, campus law enforcement, state, federal, and, and county, the first people on the scene are the people who actually will handle terrorist incidents. Before that, we had this umbrella that we thought the Fed took care of that. And then pretty much after that, we recognized that the baseline patrolman out on the street someplace is the person who has to be trained to the highest extent to recognize things out of the ordinary and things that are a threat to the community. So I think we train law enforcement officers differently to question more. Uh, we're not necessarily the order keepers as much as the proactive people on the front line against terrorism. And that's stressed, not only from the community college class level for the people going through uh, criminal justice classes here, but also out in the academy. Uh, there's discussions and protocols in place. I don't care if it's uh, awareness of explosive devices to uh, uh, crowd control uh, practicalities that used to be the, the issues bosses had to deal with. We just recognize that it, it's everybody's job now. First of all, I always let Pat speak first because he's older than me. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that comes to mind when you notice or you ask, what is the biggest difference I can tell you? Is exchange of information, intelligence. Intelligence is what gives the ability for any agency to solve a problem. And, and uh, they, as a, as a follow-up to what occurred, the federal government, state, local formed task forces, which meant there's a federal agent, there's a state guy, there's a local guy, there's a county guy. And so when you put all those people in the room together, you're going to share information. We never, nobody's left out. And so I would say, you know, there's been a lot of good things, but probably the number one is that the federal government came down off the pedestal and local law enforcement got up. And so we're all equal. And so when we talk, our voices have the same weight. 
As a counselor here at Marine Valley, I'm always impressed with all of our panels, but especially when our panelists can connect so successfully to their emotions and sometimes even be vulnerable. It gives the rest of us permission to feel and be vulnerable, and that today, for me, is the most powerful takeaway from that. So I thank you for connecting to your emotions so successfully. Make one more comment because I like to talk like Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get the last word in. After September 11th, tonight was denied to go to New York City. Several, a month or two later, I had purchased uh, World Series tickets because I went to ASU, Arizona State University, and they were playing, the, the, the Arizona uh, team was playing, the, car, the Diamondbacks were playing in the World Series against the Yankees. My son was going to school out there. Bottom line is, I flew out there and back in one day to get a chance to watch the World Series because I thought in my lifetime, 2001, I will never see a World Series game. Turned out to be wrong, thanks to the White Sox. But the most pride I've ever felt in my whole life after September 11th, really to this day, was to be in that ballpark for a, for a World Series game when the flag that they unfurled on that field was the largest flag I've ever seen in my life, even since then, and those jets flew overhead when they played the national anthem. I never had more pride than that. Not that I have any less now, but for me as a really a eye-opener, that was the best, to let people know so close to that occurrence, that tragedy, that this is America. And we are a force to be reckoned with, and we're not going to back down from anybody. Okay. I have a question. Um, hold on. Okay. How has 9-11 affected our community, either in a positive way or a negative way? I, I would say it's a, it's a combination of both. Um, you know, again... I think from a security standpoint, we're a little bit more realistic. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you watched football. You know, yesterday George Bush, uh, President George W. Bush, was on there, and he had said, so, "You know, one of the lessons we learned that day was that evil is real." You know, and 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 that's a simple truth. There's good in this world, and there's evil in this world. And um, you know, so from one aspect, I think it's I think it was a, a, a wake up, you know, in, in that regard. Um, I, I definitely think there's been a lot of negative too. I think, and I think it's already been, you know, pretty well addressed through the panel. But the fact that so many, you know, Americans were threatened, were assaulted, in some cases killed simply because of, you know, they were perceived, uh, you know, it was perceived that the, the group who was responsible for September 11th looked like them or prayed like them or, you know, whatever. So I, I think there's a combination of good and bad, you know, but it, it's definitely had a, a change and impact. You know, to go along with that, I think it's important that we recognize 9-11 did two things. It made us recognize how fortunate we are in this country uh, to be in this country. You know, people through Europe and Middle East and Far East have lived with terrorist events on a daily basis every day of their lives, uh, and we haven't had to go through that. And again, it really focused on our faults and the lack of tolerance. Because as I, as I told you at the beginning, you know, being a, a local police chief and having one of my residents call up crying to me and said, Chief, I, I just had 
two people stop me and blame me for this. At what point do we look at each other and recognize that evil is in many packages and evil is something that exists in the world uh, and you can't generalize e evil. But what we can do is look at our neighbors and recognize that those are the people that support us uh, in our worst and darkest times and we have to support them in their worst and darkest times. So I think it did two things. It made us aware of how fortunate we are in this country and also probably put the warts on the table for everybody to see that our frailties are still there and we have to work harder as a society to step over those, those generalizations about communities and religious organizations. And to follow up with that, as uh, just one other question, as law enforcement leaders, how do you train your law enforcement officials to recognize suspicious behavior, but not to discriminate or stereotype. How do you train them in that process? Because as we heard, like Samit said, you know, you have all the people assume because of how he looks that he may be a terrorist. So as you're training your officers who are on the street every day, how do you train them to be able to distinguish one from the other? And I think that's an important or uh, important statement is the fact that first of all we have to put their humanness away. Their predisposition towards communities that they don't understand uh, and we have to look at the, the totality of circumstances and when you're training a young recruit or you're training officers that are just coming under your command, uh, you have to be intolerant of intolerance and you have to reward uh, engagement of your community because the easiest thing to do is to look towards something that you believe is wrong and not see something that is wrong. And I think it's, as a community, when I talked about putting, uh, uh, putting awards on the table, I think even law enforcement officers struggle with where and how they grew up. And we have to recognize when we put this on, to, to coin a, an old say, uh, saying, look at the facts, ma'am, you know, I think we have to look at the facts uh, and not a predisposition. And that's what you have to be uh, on your, your staff about on an everyday basis and make people recognize that whatever they came in with as far as being human, they have to put that away and bring out the good traits and recognize people have to prove you wrong and there's not a, a, a general bag we throw people. Not in this country, we don't. I just want to make a comment about Adrian's question. Um, when she said, how has 9-11 affected your community positively or negatively? Um, I, I want to say, before all of this transpired, um, I was kind of exotic looking, and then now I kind of became like public enemy number one during that time, it was, it was kind of rough. Um, air, air travel has never been the same for me. I al al already know I need to step out to the side and, and spread my, my, my arms and legs and, and get searched. Uh, but I mean, all jokingly set aside, it makes me very angry. It makes me angry, it makes me upset. Uh, I feel like just few people that this happened, this whole community gets blamed. And, and quite frankly, it's almost, you, you get tired and, and exhausted of kinda trying to defend yourself. And you're like, well, not from the same region, not from the same belief system, not from the same, whatever the case may be. Um, and uh, it, and it's just an opportunity to kind of educate other people and ourselves <coughs> and, and kind of moving past, past 
moving forward, but but it, it's difficult. It's it's definitely difficult at times. It makes me very angry when I when I read the news, uh, even when you hear incidents or whatnot. Um, this elderly gentleman was just assaulted uh, recently in New York. Um, these kids like pushed him. They were yelling, and it's it's a uh, uh, someone someone recorded it, so it's on YouTube. So it makes me very very angry because that could be my grandfather, that could be my father, that could be me, and. and I don't know, 20 years, 30 years from now, so. Any other questions? So if I could leave you with one last thing, it's a little bit off topic, but um, last year I was fortunate enough to see the uh, final Grateful Dead concert at Soldier Field. I think, Troy, you were there on Sunday night. Uh, as the night wrapped up, Bob Weir left us with a piece of advice that I'd like to leave you all with. And he simply said, when you leave here today, go and be kind to one another. So I'd like to leave you with that. Just be kind to one another. How about a round of applause? <laughs> <laughs>